Many have speculated who the Antichrist is, but few realize what the Bible and history have to say about this very important topic. Today we're going to skip past the hype and see with our own eyes who or what the Antichrist is so that you aren't deceived when Bible prophecy is fulfilled. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Dance of Life podcast. Thanks so much for being with me. If you haven't subscribed yet, make sure you do so and do so on my website. It's danceoflife.com. I email people probably once a week, twice a week sometimes, but it's just the easiest and safest way to stay in touch, especially with some topics being a little more controversial. Obviously, today we are continuing our end time series and we have gotten into some pretty deep things. So that's why I ask you to stay subscribed because you just never know. But Ultimately, these things are revealing the truth, revealing who is pulling the strings, and making sure that you aren't deceived when these things are fulfilled, because I believe in this generation we will see the fulfillment of everything that the Bible talks about. So pretty pretty crazy statement, but I think I stand on solid ground when I say that. So ultimately, if you are just joining us, make sure you go back and <laughs> consult all the previous episodes. Today we're talking about who or what the Antichrist is. And if you have been with me, then you know that probably for the last 11 episodes, we have dealt with this question one way or another. We looked at the abomination of desolation. We looked at the beasts of Daniel and also the beasts of Revelation. We looked at who Mystery Babylon is, which right away, if you saw that episode, then you already know what I'm going to be talking about today. But today is, ultimately, it's less about identifying and you know pinning the tail on the antichrist type of thing and really it's understanding what does antichrist mean we will talk a little bit about who or what but it's really about understanding first and foremost what does antichrist mean and there's a very important reason why we want to understand that so let's review a couple things the belief in a personal antichrist as in the antichrist the one person who is supposedly going to be satan in the flesh or whatever This is part of a broader group of eschatology or end times views called futurism. We talked about this in the first episode of this series where we introduced the various end times views. And there's many of them, but they generally fall into five categories. Most end times views are futuristic. Now, I don't mean like lasers and, you know, UFOs or anything. I mean futuristic in the sense that they see a lot of the things happening in Revelation not as happened in the past, like preterists do, not as happening throughout history, like a historical view, which is what I have held to throughout this series, but rather as a future thing, like things, most of Revelation hasn't happened, it's all in the future, there's going to be a personal antichrist who's going to walk into a physical temple in Jerusalem, proclaim himself to be God, there's going to be a seven-year tribulation, a lot of things are associated to this idea, dispensationalism, pre-trib rapture for some people. So ultimately, there's a whole belief system centered around a personal antichrist. But if you know your history, and we talked about this in great depth in this series, so go check out those last couple episodes, especially the last 10 episodes where we talked about, again, Abomination of Desolation, Mystery Babylon, you know, the image of the beast, the counterfeit spirit, all these things, they're, they're a little bit longer, some of them, but ultimately I did so because I wanted you to have a resource. Watch them in parts if you have to, take notes, you know, bookmark them, whatever. Ultimately, 
we realize that this futurist eschatology, all the things I just mentioned, were created by the true Antichrist power on the earth, which is the papacy, the Catholic Church, the Catholic system, really, which created this idea of a future interpretation of the Bible, which was very literal, very fleshly. They created that during the Counter-Reformation, where ultimately, what and we'll look at this in greater detail today, what, what happened during the Reformation? Well, the Reformers universally and, and unilaterally, unilaterally identified the Catholic system as the beast that was prophesied in both Daniel and John. So they, they pinned the tail on the Antichrist and said, look, we're in the system right now. We're living in it. Now, that's a big problem because you have a grassroots movement that's proliferating itself out and realizing the truth. And you're an autocratic or, you know, a, basically a totalitarian, totalitarian system. And totalitarian systems get taken down by grassroots movements. So they had to create their own grassroots counter-movement, and that's why you have the counter-reformation, which you can look into. It's not a conspiracy theory. The Jesuits were created, and you can look into their influence. Certainly we have done a number on that topic. We've done a lot to talk about the influence of the Jesuits politically, economically, socially, throughout the last 500 years. And so ultimately, whoops, just a little cord fell there. Sorry for that sound. But ultimately, look, history testifies against the Catholic Church in many, many ways. And this idea of a future Antichrist, a personal Antichrist, was designed to take attention off of the truth, which is that end times prophecies, like Daniel and John, they deal with political systems. They deal with kingdoms. They deal with powers. They don't necessarily deal with individuals. Now, the little horn power in Daniel is a power, it's a kingdom, but it has personal characteristics, right? It is as the eye of a man, so there's the, or the eyes of a man. So there, there are certain personal qualities. And we know that the papacy, which is Vatican, which is the great city that sits on seven hills, Mystery Babylon, has a king, which is the pope. The, king, the pope is the king and the high priest, Pontifex Maximus, which is a Babylonian title that's been passed down through the Roman emperors from Babylon and ultimately into the Pope and his title. And he still uses this title today. If you look on Twitter, it says at Pontifex. So, you know, when they try to talk this down and say, oh, no, it's just, you know, whatever. It's just a fun little title that, that was or whatever. We're not using it. It's not true. And remember, all these people, they have something that they tell you on the surface. Whereas for the occult, for the initiated, there's something that they all know that's secret. Well, it's not that secret because God has revealed it to us if you actually do your research, and we did in this series. But nevertheless, he's king and priest. The popes wore diadems. Who is the one who wears many diadems? It's Christ. What's the vicar of Christ? It's the person that's supposed to be Christ on earth. And so there is plenty of evidence against the Catholic Church that it's fulfilled the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation. What I am telling you right now is not my opinion. It has, this has been talked about for hundreds of years. But a lot of Protestants today and a lot of people have been fooled into futurist eschatology about a personal antichrist. And so today is really understanding what does the Bible mean when it says, when it uses the word antichrist? Because it's only used in John's letters. It's not really used in Daniel. It's not used in the book of Revelation. 
The word antichrist is not used there. It's used by John in one of his letters. And so we're going to look at that. So the first question is, is the antichrist a person, a political power, or maybe it's both, as in the case of the papacy? The second question we want to answer is, how do Daniel's prophecies relate to John's revelation? Because if you don't see a relationship between these two prophecies, then you're really going to run into error, which a lot of people run into, because they don't see the connection between these two books and their prophecies. Of course, the final question is, what does the Bible have to say about the Antichrist? And that's what we'll answer today. So where does this idea of a personal Antichrist even come from? Well, it comes, again, from the Counter-Reformation. It comes from the, from the idea that, oh, it's not a system that's oppressing you that's antichrist against Christ. It's going to be this future charming guy that, that Satan's going to possess somehow. And, you know, probably that's true to some extent. But this, this future antichrist is coming. He's not here yet. Don't look at us. That's where it comes from. And, of course, they use certain scriptures. People who believe this idea use scripture, of course. You know, scripture is always used... Even the devil used scripture to tempt Christ. So we have to be careful with scripture and let scripture be interpreted by scripture. But it comes from a couple places. So the first one, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3 through 4. And it says, Let no man deceive you in any way, for that day will not come, this is the day of the Lord, unless the rebellion comes first, right? So great apostasy, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So this is one of the verses that's used. We'll look at a couple of others. This one draws from Daniel a couple places, and specifically Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel 11. So in Daniel 7 verse 25, you have this mention of the little horn. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change times and the law, and they shall be given to into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Which again, this is a period of 1260 years. We looked at this. Let me just go to Daniel 11 really quick and I'll come back to this. So Daniel 11, verse 36, And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is com- accomplished for what is decreed shall be done. So, These verses are talking about the little horn power. The little horn power, if you recall from Daniel, comes out of Rome. Rome is the fourth beast that Daniel sees. And the sequence of empires that Daniel sees is consistent through Daniel 2, Daniel 7, and Daniel 8. In Daniel 2, you have the statue that he sees, which basically foretells the rest of history until the return of Christ, which is this Babylonian system It's a statue, it's one thing, but it degrades over time into various metals, and those metals represent different empires, but it's still one thing, it's one system. It's not one statue going into another statue. This is very important because it it testifies to the fact that this has been one system since Babylon, and for sure since even before that, but that's when Daniel received his vision, and so it started with Babylon. And so this system is consistent with the four beasts. We looked at all this stuff in detail, so I'm not going to get too much into it. Check out the four beasts episode and how that relates to all the different beasts of Revelation in the book of Daniel with the statue, with the um, 
with the two beasts, the, the ram and the goat vision. I mean, it's all the same sequence of empires. You had Babylon, then you had Persia, then you had Greece, then you had Rome. And after Rome basically withered away, you had the papacy, which ruled for 1260 years. People forget that. People forget the papacy was the supreme authority on the earth, the one world system, basically. Of course, it wasn't the entire earth, but the the known world, civilization where Christianity was, Rome ruled. And so that system was around for a long time. It persecuted lots of people. It trotted over the saints. It warped the Bible and prevented people from learning the gospel. The Pope sat between two cherubim, and he still sits between cherubim. He proclaims himself to be God. And what temple? What's the temple? The temple is not a physical reality. The apostles and Jesus both taught that the temple is a spiritual reality. Episode number six of this series. Go check it out if you haven't seen it. It's all about how the temple is a spiritual reality that Christ built. He's the cornerstone. And so... All these things have a spiritual understanding. When, when it says that he's walking into the temple and proclaiming himself to be God, it, it, there's no physical future temple being built. This is a false prophecy that they are engineering. We looked into that and what the reason for that is. It's, again, to bring about the one world system of false peace. But the temple's already been built by Christ. That's the third temple. That's the point, that it's indestructible. And all the apostles saw that. The church is the body of Christ, is the temple, is the kingdom. It's, it's all this same reality. So who's walked into that reality, masquerading as perhaps a believer, a genuine believer, but actually is giving Jesus the kiss of betrayal? And that's the papacy as a system. Now, Daniel 7 says that the, this little horn power will rule for a time, times, and, and times and a half. A time, times, and half a time. <laughs> So that adds up to 360 days. But we remember from, again, all these previous episodes that the only proper way to interpret these time prophecies is through the day-to-year principle. Otherwise, you're going to run into all kinds of weird theology. And if that's the case, 360 prophetic days is really 1,260 years, right? And so ultimately... Uh, I'm sorry, the three the times are a year, so you have 1,260 days. I'm, I made a mistake on that. 1,260 days is a time, times, and, time, and a half a times. I was thinking the value of a time, which is a year, 360 days. Well, it's a prophetic year, but because the, the Jews believed in a 365-day year, so again, we talked about that in previous episodes as well, but three and a half years, that's basically what it is. It's 1,260 days. And so ultimately... If we look at that as a prophetic time, it's 1260 years. So obviously it's not a personal antichrist that's living for 1260 years. It's a system. And we have that in history from the papacy ruling from 538 AD to 1798 AD. So all of this has been talked about, but this is where it comes from. And again, this is the kind of theology that's being constructed. It's been constructed for hundreds of years to take attention off of the real power on the earth. Again, if you were if you were that power, you wouldn't want people to identify you. You wouldn't want people to be seeing spiritual realities, which is what the Bible talks about. You'd rather distract them with physical realities. And this is, again, another hallmark of the devil. He puts your eyes on physical things. And so instead of looking at the temple as a spiritual reality that Christ built, 
you're hungry for Israel and looking at what Israel's doing. Oh my gosh, Israel's building a third temple. It must be Bible prophecy. Oh my gosh. It's not. They're engineering their false prophecy, which they committed to, right? So they, they committed to this false prophecy. Now they have to fulfill it. That's why they're behind the building of the third temple, which again, I talk about the possibility that there could be a false Christ too. Maybe Satan will appear as, a, as an angel of light, like the Bible says, and people will worship him thinking that we're in the millennial kingdom now. It's here, golden age. That's not what's happening. And if that does happen, a lot of people will be deceived, just like the Bible says. But nevertheless, I digress. We'll talk more about this stuff. There's also Revelation 13, where it talks about the false prophet. And we talked about, we had a whole episode on the second beast. So go check that out. The false prophet, again, beasts are systems. They're not individuals. You have to get outside that thinking because, again, that thinking doesn't come from the Bible. It comes from the Catholic Church. Beasts are systems. A system can act as a false prophet to another system by deceiving people into paying homage to that first system. That is exactly what's happening in Revelation 13. John describes the papacy. He uses the same terminology that Daniel used with all his beasts. This, this first beast that John sees is a conglomerate of all the Babylonian Greco-Roman characteristics, which the papacy is. And then it receives a mortal wound, and that wound is healed, and then people marvel after the beast. Well, the wound was when the Pope, after 1260 years of ruling, not the singular Pope, but the papacy, was arrested in 1798 by Napoleon. Napoleon's general. And so then what happened? Well, then you had basically no papacy. The papacy was declared to be at an end, which of course, that's a mortal wound. If you are a political system, that's a mortal wound. But it seemed like a mortal wound. It wasn't actually a mortal wound. Everything went underground. It went to secret societies. And then 130 years later, you had the Lateran Pact, which returned all the papal states. And then people started to marvel after the papacy. Today, everybody, oh my gosh, the Pope is so amazing. He's, you know, we looked at that. That's the bigger picture. And then John sees a second beast who comes out of the earth, meaning a not so populated area, but then becomes a, a world power, the same as the first beast. The United States fits the bill. And we looked at how that, we looked at several episodes. We looked at the second beast. We looked at the image of the beast. Go check those out. They're very good episodes. They're, they're going to fill you with lots of knowledge so that you can see clearly, so you can see beyond this, oh, who's the false prophet? Is it Yova Newell Harari? Is it Elon Musk? Is it Trump? Who's the false prophet? I mean, people are trying to pin the tail on the Antichrist and the false prophet, and they are so deceived to actually what's happening, which is that the world is being restructured into a one-world system. So, a couple of responses to these verses, which we already kind of reviewed, but the little horn in Daniel is a power, it's a kingdom, but it also is personified. So we know that the papacy has a, it's a kingdom, it's a city, it matches all the descriptions of Revelation and Daniel, but it also has a personal representative. We also know that God called Israel as a nation, a person, right? But he's referring to the nation. There's many times where Nations in the Bible are referred to like a person, as an individual, right? Like Israel and his, you know, he's going to go up there or whatever. Well, he is talking about the nation of Israel because 
Israel was personified. That happens in the Bible quite a lot of times. So it's not unreasonable to believe that the little horn, which has some personal characteristics, would be representative of a power, especially since every other thing in that vision, the four beasts, was indicative of a power. And so are Daniel 8, the vision of the ram and the goat. The vision of the statue is all about kingdoms and powers. It's about kingdoms and powers because kingdoms and powers occupy a lot of space and they live for a long time. Okay, I mean, this is, we looked at this in detail. But again, you know, remember episode number six with the temple? The temple is not physical, it's spiritual. Remember the second beast episode where we looked at the United States being the, the second beast, which is the false prophet. Beasts are powers and kingdoms. They're, they're not individuals. Mystery Babylon, which has not happened yet, sits on seven hills. There's no other power in history that fulfills the role of a woman, which is a church, in this case an apostate church, that sits on a seven hills, which is basically the Vatican. I mean, you have another place called Istanbul, which is in Turkey, which used to be Constantinople, where Constantine fused church and state and created basically the foundation for the papacy to take over 150 years later, approximately. But ultimately, it's, even then, it applies as well. In Istanbul and Rome are the only two places that have seven hills. And so the woman, the apostate church that sits on seven hills, is Rome. You can't get away from that. So if your eye is on Israel, 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 if it's eye on a physical temple, a personal antichrist, trying to predict the rapture, all these things that people are doing, you are missing the mark and you will be deceived. So the word antichrist, like I said, is mentioned specifically in some letters that John wrote. John also wrote the book of Revelation. So it's very important to understand what he meant by the term antichrist. So let's look at that. First John chapter 2, verse 18 through 23, warning against antichrists, plural. So that right away, that should raise an eyebrow against this whole personal antichrist thing. Children, this is verse 18. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, the antichrist, that anti, that antichrist is coming, as in, in general. So now many antichrists have come. So again, plural. Already have they come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. So they knew that they were in the last days, this whole seven-year tribulation. They knew that they were in the last days from the cross. And that's consistent with our understanding that Satan was bound. Remember, the war in heaven in Revelation 12 is not something that happened before the cosmos, like some people believe, or, you know, at some point in the future. The war in heaven happened when Christ was victorious over death through the crucifixion. Because Satan lost his power in the heavens as the accuser. As long as before the cross, as long as we had reality before the cross, Satan could go to God and accuse people, just like he did with Job, just like he did many times. But he, there was no more place found for him because now humanity had an intercessor through Christ. That's why Satan lost his power and was bound. And of course, he said, okay, Along with that losing of power, God also determined that now you have an advocate, humanity, but I'm also going to destroy the world in judgment. I'm going to destroy this kingdom that Satan has created 
in a fiery judgment at a future date. So Satan's time is limited. Not only did he lose his power, but your time is limited. And so Satan was thrown down to earth. He was pissed off, obviously. So what did he do? He persecuted the saints. He killed as many people as he could. Then he realized that that didn't work. So now, okay, let me start a false religion. Try to get people to worship me. So it's been, we've been living in the tribulation since the cross. And it's obvious because, first off, if people getting martyred and thrown to lions and crucified doesn't count as tribulation to you, then I don't know what counts as tribulation. There's been so much bloodshed in the last 2,000 years, Christian bloodshed. So this, uh, this idea of a seven-year future tribulation, let alone that some people won't be part of because they're going to get raptured, is just a false teaching. It really is. And it's clear that John believed that they were in the last days. So anyway, moving on. Verse 19, they, being the Antichrists, went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. What's he talking about? But they went out that it might become plain that they were not of us. So this is about people who are false converts, who are fighting against Christ, false teachers, false apostles. This was very much in the early church. They are antichrist. They're people who are against Christ and fighting against Christ. Verse 20, but you have been anointed by the Holy One and you have all knowledge. and And you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So this is a very important verse because, again, it tells you who is the Antichrist. It's the one who denies that Jesus is the Messiah. The one who denies that Jesus is the propitiation for sin. The one who denies that Jesus is the one way to being saved. Based on that definition, there's a lot of Antichrists. Antichrist is a general thing that describes anybody who is against Christ and the gospel. But let's keep going. 1 John, a little bit later in chapter 4, verse 3. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. So every spirit, not like a singular spirit that's going to come and possess a person and then he's going to speak things against God. No, every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is in the world already. This was written almost 2,000 years ago. And what is he saying? He's saying two things that are very important. That the Antichrist spirit is not just a person or a personal spirit. Of course, spirits are personal, but it's any spirit. It could be a new age spirit that tells you, oh, you know, you can find your bliss within yourself and you just meditate all day and, you know, you'll reach nirvana. That's an antichrist spirit because it doesn't confess Jesus Christ as your answer. It confesses the world or yourself or whatever else is the answer. That's an antichrist spirit. That's why John says, test the spirits, right? Now, the other thing is that's important that he said is that it's already here, right? which you had heard was coming and now is in the world already. Why is it in the world already? Revelation 12, because Satan was kicked out and lost his power to accuse 
and was thrown down to earth. And so now he's on the earth. Not that he wasn't around the earth anyway, but he has, his time is up. He's bound. He cannot affect God's plan. It's set in stone. And so now this is the final stage of the spiritual warfare. And so the Antichrist spirit is among us. It's it's ready to attack at any point in time by deceiving, by discouraging, by persecuting, right? It's got both sides. We talked about this dark and light. Satan uses both sides, the dark, murdering, persecuting, and the light, which is the deceptions like the new age, like false religions, like all these different things. He uses both angles. So our final chapter, which is in 2 John, a second letter, this is in uh, chapter 1, verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. This is talking about Gnostics who believe that Jesus was just spiritual. It wasn't actually a fleshly incarnation. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. So again, it's it's not saying this, is, when he says such a one is a deceiver and the antichrist, he's not saying this is going to be the person who's coming 2,000 years from now. He's going to deny that Jesus came in the flesh. There have been people like that. I mean, the religion of Islam denies that Jesus was crucified. Okay, the Gnostics believed that Jesus was just a spirit being. So this has been around for a long time. There's many people who fit this category. When he says such a one, meaning out of all of population, if you see 10 people out of 100 people, or rather I should say 80 out of 100, with this attitude, such a one or such a one's is a deceiver and the Antichrist. So it's not saying there's one person. It's saying these are the types of people that are Antichrist. So, what do we make of this? Well, according to John, he who denies that Jesus is the Messiah is the Antichrist. Anybody who does that. He who denies that Jesus came in the flesh, meaning denies the incarnation, Jesus' humanity, is also Antichrist. All these things relate to what? They're applied to the false converts that were very common at that time. They apply to the false teachers, the Gnostics. Again, the Gnostics were a very popular sect, and Gnosticism is still very alive and well today. If you've seen the Matrix movies, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's full-out Gnosticism. It's everywhere. Again, there's countless parables against these things, against false converts specifically, like the wise and the foolish virgins, the ten talents and or the gold coins, the parable of the sower. I mean, the parable of the sower, you had 50% of the seeds that were sown were false converts. Remember, some of them were sown on like thorn bushes and the thorn bushes, which represents the cares of the world, strangled the seed. So people were converts, but they weren't actually true converts because they loved the world more. And then you had some of the seeds that were sown on the dry land and the sun basically scorched them up. So you had, again, dark and light. This is, I love the word of God, man. It's just, it's so profound. It really is. It, it, it always reveals to you the knowledge of good and evil, the true knowledge of good and evil, which is like, okay, the devil uses both sides. We talked about this in the dark to light episode. Longer episode, but it will give you so much discernment. What does the parable of the sower tell you? That the false converts are either going to be because of the dark or the light. The sun that scorched the seeds represented persecution. That's darkness. That's full-on satanic murder, persecution, feeding you to lions. 
That's darkness. And a lot of people lost their faith because they weren't genuine believers. They weren't regenerated. And then you had the light, which is the false light, which represents the thorn bushes. The, the concerns of the world, the distractions of the world are more important to those seeds. So Satan is either going to get you with the dark or the light. He's either going to scorch you and, and test you and then you're going to give up if you're a false convert. Or he's going to distract you and tempt you and deceive you and comfort you with the world. This is exactly what happened. You had the first 200 years, 300 years were persecution. And then ever since then, it's just been false religion and distractions. And today we are living at the peak of that because what's on the horizon is a one world religion that will seem good. I talked about that in the Dark to Light episode. It's a longer episode, but man, you're going to get so much out of that. I truly hope that more people watch it. But look, that's how it was applying to them. When, when John was talking about Antichrist, he was talking about false converts. Again, remember, they, they went out from us. What does that apply to? It's applied to false teachers, false converts, Gnostics, heretics. There's a lot of those people in those days, and there still are today. Today, it's applied to the same thing. False converts, false teachers. Anybody who denies the incarnation, Islam, hello. I mean, basically, I, well, Islam, I should say, I'll, I'll qualify this statement. They don't deny the incarnation, but they deny that Jesus was crucified on the cross, which, again, that that is Antichrist. You're denying that basically Jesus is the propitiation for the sins, right? Anybody who denies the the propitiation of sins and that Jesus is the one way to be saved and that he is the Messiah, which all these things mean the same thing. Messiah means he's the one that's saving, meaning there's no other way to be saved. So if you deny that, if you believe in religious pluralism, that's antichrist. If you deny that Jesus was crucified on the cross, that's antichrist. If you think that Jesus was a spirit being and he was just like maybe an alien or whatever, a good teacher from a different planet, that's antichrist. All these things are antichrist. And of course, again, things like New Age and other religions today, all these things are antichrist, according to what John said. Because they deny that Jesus is the Messiah, and some of them even deny that Jesus came in the flesh, like Gnostics. Gnosticism is still very much alive today. They think they spiritualize everything. Remember that many will say, Lord, Lord. Why don't you open the door? And he will say, depart from me, workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. I never knew you. Again, that shouldn't scare you if you're a genuine believer because you know that Christ is omniscient, that he was slain before the foundation of the world, meaning he knew before the foundation of the world who he was dying for. This is a whole other can of worms, but look, if he says, I never knew you, and God has lived forever, then that just tells you that those people were never meant to be saved. They weren't part of God's plan. They were part as villains, false converts, but they weren't part as inheritors with Christ. So anybody who denies the deity of Christ, again, because Christ cannot atone if he's not God. So people like Unitarians, Judaism, those are antichrist systems, antichrist beliefs because they deny the deity of Jesus. So you can you can believe that Jesus existed, but if you deny his godhood, that he is God, then that's antichrist, because he cannot be the Messiah. He can't save 
unless he is God. A created being cannot atone for sins forever for everybody. You can only have the uncreated blood of the eternal God to atone for everybody for all time. That's the point. And so there is much more to this whole idea of Antichrist than meets the eye. Is question for you I have is this. Is that spirit still alive and well today? And the answer is yes, it's been around for 2,000 years. The Antichrist spirit has been around since the cross. And that's obvious if you just study the Bible and study history. Anything can be Antichrist if it's in the place of Christ or it's trying to war against Christ or it's trying to pull you away from Christ or trying to twist who Christ is. Look at progressive Christianity. We looked at that in the counterfeit spirit of the beast. That's Antichrist. You have these progressive preachers these days that are teaching, you know, God is a trans or my gosh, I mean, it's just such, such stupid things. You know, God is non-binary and just as if God is even bound by physical rules. So it's, you know, you have these crazy ideas, but again, that's not a surprise because we're living in that time, those final days when there will be so much deception. All these things are antichrist and they are peaking in our generation because we're at the end. Now, I want to look at Judas as a type of antichrist because the word son of destruction this all is going to tie in very well. Son of destruction is used in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, which we just read. Also in John 17, verse 12, when Jesus says, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have, re- I have guarded them, and not one of them has, lo- has been lost except the son of destruction, which is Judas, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Again, another testament to the fact that Jesus will keep his sheep. Whoever God has given Jesus, he will keep. He didn't keep Judas because Judas was a false convert who was never destined to be saved. Judas was the villain in the story. God wrote him into the story as the villain. If you disagree with that, then you have to study your Bible more because ultimately we can't think ourselves so clever and so smart that we can tell God how to write his story. God chose people he was going to save, and he also wrote into the story necessary villains to reveal his glory, his grace, to move the plan along, and so many other things. But again, that's a topic for another time. The point is that when this idea of son of destruction is used, this phrase, it's only used in two places in the Bible. It's used in the passage in Thessalonians, where Paul talks about the revealing of the lawless one, whoever that will be or whatever that will be. Remember, Israel as a nation was also talked about in a personal sense. So there's that. But that is only used in one other time in John 17, 12, where Christ is talking about Judas. So now we're starting to see some very interesting parallels. We see, again, all these things about false converts. John is talking about false converts being antichrist. The parables address false converts. Christ said, you know, there's going to be plenty who are going to say, Lord, Lord, open the door, but I'll never, I've never known them. And we have the son of destruction, which again, parallels Judas to this future system that's antichrist, this future thing, whatever it happens to be. So obviously, I think that exploring Judas as a type for the antichrist can give us a lot of wisdom in this area. Now, it's important also to compare Luke chapter 
22 verse 3 through 4 with 2 Thessalonians. So we're going to look at this. Judas betrays Jesus. And this is verse 3 through 4 in Luke 22. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was the number of the twelve. He went away and confirmed with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him. So what happened here? Satan is not becoming incarnate like Jesus became incarnate. Satan possessed Judas. This is very, very important. Let's look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 a little bit later, verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth to love the truth and so be saved. Could this be talking about a false Christ where Satan will be possessing a body and be working false miracles? Possibly, could it be talking about Satan possessing a man like the Pope and leading a system, a counterfeit religion, which we talked about it, that is coming back into power, and the Bible says will come back into power. Mystery Babylon is a system. And Mystery Babylon, at its head, has the Pope. Will the Pope, the final Pope, be possessed by the devil and that way deceive many? Who knows? I don't have the answer. I don't think anybody really does. I think all of the things I just talked about are possibilities that are very legitimate based on everything we've studied so far. But the point is that there's a... A few things here. A lot of people argue that the Antichrist is going to be Satan incarnate. Again, it's it, it, the devil is trying to appropriate the truth to himself. The incarnation is unique to Jesus. This idea that Satan incarnate, this is not founded anywhere. The, the, the incarnation of God becoming human, seamlessly being God and man, this is unique to the power of God. No other spirit can do this. Okay, spirits can manifest. They can have physical manifestations, but becoming human and remaining also God simultaneously is a mystery. I mean, it's a mystery unique to God himself. So we have to dismiss that because again, John 13, 27, same thing, Satan entered Judas. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, this is Judas, what you are going to do, do it quickly. So every gospel relates the fact that Satan entered into Judas and possessed him. And again, that's because they didn't have God's protection. The father did not give Judas to Jesus because then Jesus would have been obligated to keep Judas. Satan would not have been able to enter Judas and do what he did. This is the point. And if you're a believer today and you have the Holy Spirit, you cannot be possessed, let alone be possessed by Satan. I mean, that's just a, a crazy idea. So what we can take from this is that Judas is a type for the future. Very clearly so. Because of the all these correlations between the son of perdition, false converts, right? The person who betrayed Christ, Satan entered into them. These things are very interrelated. And if that's the case, then a close religious figure of authority... Judas had authority. He was a quote-unquote believer. He wasn't a true believer. But this figure is who betrays Christ, who betrayed Christ in history, and who is compared to whatever is going to happen at the end of time. And this person will also be possessed by the devil. Or perhaps it's a system that is being 
run by the Antichrist spirit. But we know Judas was the treasurer who was in charge of all the money. Who's in charge of all the money on the earth? It's the Vatican. They're the wealthiest organization on the earth. They are wealthier than anybody else. They have basically pillaged everything. They have the Vatican Library. They have the treasuries. They're the ones in charge of the money. They're the ones in charge of all these political schemes. They're the ones who also, on the forefront, appear to be closest to Christ, the vicar of Christ. He's he's in Jesus's corner, you know, shepherding people on earth and supposed to be responsible for all that God has given him. And yet, again, if you study the Mystery Babylon episode, you'll realize just how much of a Judas the papacy actually is. So I think that we are not out of line to see Judas as a type for the future Antichrist system or Antichrist individual who is heading that system. But we are in the Church of Laodicea. We're in the seventh Church of Revelation. Remember, the Churches of Revelation, we haven't gotten to this yet. We'll look at it in a future episode. But it's a prophecy of time. And all these different churches correspond to different periods of time throughout the last days since the cross until the second coming of Christ. And we're in that final church. We're in the lukewarm church. Remember the parable of the 10 virgins, how five of the virgins ran out of oil because they ran out of faith. They're false converts. The parable of the sower, 50%. Again, it's it's the same thing. Now, I don't know statistically if that's exactly how it is, but those are some pretty, you know, pretty big numbers, right? If Christ is saying 50% of the people in the parable of the sower are false converts. If five of the virgins are false converts, it's telling you that a lot of people will be false converts. So that's something to pay attention to. And again, Matthew uh, 7, verse 21, I never knew you. He never knew them. They were never meant to be known. They were part of the story as villains, as side characters, because God had never regenerated their hearts. And so the only time, let's put it all together, Sorry for my voice. <clears throat> the only time the son of destruction is used is for Judas. That's the only time. So it's used once in Thessalonians, and the other time that term is used is for Judas. And so we have to investigate what is Judas, what is the example of Judas have to teach us about the Antichrist or the Antichrist system? Well, Judas was a false convert who pretended to follow Christ, but in the end was possessed by the devil and betrayed him. Judas was also the treasurer who was in charge of the money of the welfare of the little church in that sense, right? The apostles were kind of the beginning of the church in some sense. So he was in charge of that. Well, we've identified who Mystery Babylon is as a system. It's the papacy. It's the Catholic Church. So is it any wonder that the papacy also has a representative who says he's close to Christ, who basically is supposed to represent Christ on earth, but in reality, he's betraying him. I think it all fits together perfectly. Now, does that mean is the Pope the Antichrist? The Antichrist? I don't think so. Not necessarily. Again, there's there's a representative, but we have to stop. The point here is this, guys. We have to stop thinking in terms of individual people because your attention is going to bounce back and forth. Who's the Antichrist? Is that person the Antichrist? Oh, what about the false prophet? That's not what the point of all these things are. It's about seeing systems that are Antichrist. Spirits, beliefs, ideas, groups that are Antichrist. 
so that you do not align with them. This is the point of John's letters, where he that is the only place where the word Antichrist is even mentioned. Now, we know that the future is going to have a church-state union under the Pope. We talked about this again. If this is the first time you've ever heard it, please go back to the previous episodes. There may even be a false Christ. And Satan will possess these people to lead the new world order. But possession is not incarnation. So do not give Satan any credit where credit is definitely not due because it's just going to be possession, like demons possess people. Satan can possess people like he possessed Judas, but it's not going to be an incarnation. Now, another important thing is this. The mystery of iniquity was already at work during that time. You know that John said that, but we know that Paul said that as well. And we know that from 2 Thessalonians, boy, that's a tough word to pronounce, chapter 2, verse 7, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains, it will do so until he is out of the way. Now, we talked about this in the daily, the episode on the daily. And if you don't know what that is, go check it out. Very important episode about a word that's used in the book of Daniel uh, that is not correctly translated in some of these, you know, like English Standard Version, which again, English Standard Version is okay. It's not bad. But when it comes to end time stuff, you know, you have to be more careful. But nevertheless, it's we we talked about how the, the restrainer is not the Holy Spirit in this case. The restrainer is pagan Rome that is restraining the final power, which is the little horn power, which is papal Rome. Papal Rome erupted out of pagan Rome. Daniel says that he plucked up three kings, and we looked at how that fulfilled in history with the Visigoths, the um, Heruli, and the Ostrogoths, who were basically removed before the papacy was established as the formalized power. So all these things have a fulfillment in history. But again, the mystery of lawlessness was already at work. This final mystery, Mystery Babylon, was already like beginning its roots in the very beginning. Remember, Satan was cast down. He had to scheme very quickly and very productively because he knew his time was up. We know, for example, the counterfeit Christians already had started teaching things like spiritual resurrection. Second Timothy Chapter 2, verse 17 through 18. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened, as in the global resurrection or the, 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 you know, the final resurrection. They are upsetting the faith of some. So these people are teaching false doctrines about the resurrection. Oh, it's a spiritual thing. The Christ consciousness, right? All the things that you hear today. There's nothing new under the sun. I mean, it's been going around for 2,000 years. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12, the resurrection of the dead. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So some people were denying it. So you had some people teaching that already happened, and some people saying, oh, it's, you know, it's not going to happen. It's, it's a spiritual thing. It's actually Christ consciousness or whatever they were teaching. You had false gospels, Galatians 1, verses 6 through 9. No other gospel. Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the, in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. What gospel is that? Well, somebody was teaching false gospels. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we were an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Has this been fulfilled in history? 
through Muhammad, through Joseph Smith, through so many people who claim to have revelations from angels, and they distort the truth. This has been going on since the very beginning. Other doctrines, 1 John chapter 4, verse 1 through 3, test the spirits. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world, as in present tense, in John's time. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. We read this previously, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you heard was coming now and is in the world already. So if you do not believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is not divine, that he is not the Son of God, that he is not God, that's what this represents and means. Confess that Jesus is not from God. Because being from God makes him God, because he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is God. If you don't believe that, you don't agree with that, that's Antichrist. That's been going on for a long time. The mystery of iniquity was already starting in the Apostles' day. By the time John wrote Revelation, things had already gotten worse. Look at this, Revelation 2, verse 6. This is what Jesus is saying to the different churches, yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And of course, the Nicolaitans were hyper-grace, universalism. They had, you know, like we're saved, so basically do whatever you want type of thing, license to sin. So it was a very heretical sect. And of course, you also had Revelation 2 verse 14 where Jesus says again, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of Nicolaitan. So this was a very popular thing in the churches, the seven original churches of Revelation that, again, God uses the physical to portray the spiritual. There were really seven churches in Asia Minor. And those seven churches... Interestingly enough, the, the postal route between those churches is the, exactly the order of history that we see in Revelation. And the, the order of the different, we'll get all into this in a future episode, but anyway, the point is this. They were real churches, and they were dealing with what? They were dealing with heresies, false teachings. The mystery of iniquity and lawlessness was already at work in those days. In Acts 20, verses 29 through 30, Paul knew that, that wolves in sheep's clothing would come in. Acts 20, verse 20, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among our own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. So Paul knew the mystery of lawlessness was already at work, and in Acts, he said, listen, when I'm gone, there's going to be a lot of false teachers that are going to come into the flock and basically deceive people. Second John verses, uh, chapter one, verse seven, three, for many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. We talked about this, many deceivers, false teachers are coming. Jude one, verse four, for certain people have crept unnoticed who long ago were were designated for this condemnation. Again, those who are false converts, who are the villains, were predestined, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only master, our Lord, 
Jesus Christ. Jude 1, verses 17 through 19, a call to persevere. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time, i.e. now, from now until the return of Christ, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. So, Jude, Paul, John, Christ himself, all testified to the reality that the mystery of lawlessness was already at work. The Antichrist effort was already in play from the very beginning. Because again, the devil was kicked out. He was bound. You cannot change the outcome. The gospel will go out to the nations, even though you're going to deceive people. The gospel will go out to the nations. The earth has been determined to be judged. It's over. And so the devil went into panic mode, and basically we have the rest of history. And we're at the culmination of that history right now. Now, Peter is another example, and he, in chapter 5, verse 13 of his first letter, he talks about Rome being Babylon. By Silvanus, the faithful brothers, I regard him, I have written briefly to you, this is verse 12, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, take note of that, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and also so does Mark, my son. Now, there's an important clue here, and it's Mark. Okay, we know from Colossians 4, verse 10, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. Mark, this Mark is the same Mark as the Mark in Peter's letter. And he was with Paul in Rome when he wrote the letter to the Colossians. So when Peter is saying Babylon and is tying that to one of the believers and also Mark, what is he doing there? He's calling Rome Babylon. He's writing about Rome. Why is he calling it Babylon? Well, first off, he's protecting Christians by using code. The Romans aren't going to realize what the significance of that is, but the Christians do. Why? Because they're aware of the prophecies of Daniel, of this Babylonian system that has pervaded through time and that will pervade all the way through the end, just like the statue the vision of the statue foretells. The statue, which starts with Babylon and ends with a disintegrating empire, when Christ returns, it's the same statue, it's the same system that keeps changing and modifying through different empires, and ultimately it's a mishmash of different things, but it's the same system. So when he calls Babylon, he calls Rome Babylon, and you have everybody else talking about how there's mystery of iniquity already at work. You have John seeing mystery Babylon, which refers to Rome, the city of seven hills. Sits The woman sits on seven hills. It's all the same thing. Do you see what's going on? I hope you do, because ultimately people have been so fooled by this futurist eschatology to look at a little tiny sliver of land in the Middle East and to try to find who in the public sphere right now fits the bill for the Antichrist? Is it Trump? Is it Pope Francis? Is it, you know, Macron? Is it, you know, Charles Schwab? Charles, um, whatever his name is, Carl's. I forget the guy's name right now. The big, bad, evil boogeyman of the World Economic Forum. Charles Schwab. It's uh, Klaus Schwab. There we go. That's what it is. Is it Yuval Noel Harari? Is that the false prophet? I mean, 
These are just so fruitless because you are just being deceived and distracted and playing into their game. Remember, Satan was thrown down out of heaven at the cross. No more accusing status. He lost his power. So he was furious. He came down to earth with great fury, persecuted Christians, started heresies, influenced people with with false ideas. Then he started the Catholic Church in 321 by mixing paganism and the state and religion to create his counterfeit religion, which exists today and has existed since then. The papacy emerged 200 years later as a power out of the Roman Empire and ruled for 1260 years with bloodshed and political power and intrigue all testifying against it. And all of this is coming back to a head now. We've talked, we've spent the last 10 episodes talking about this, especially the last, I would say, five maybe. But this is what we're living in today. However, if you believe that the Antichrist is a future reality, especially one that you don't have to deal with because you're going to get raptured, or you believe that the Antichrist happened in the past, and it just concerned the Jews with the Romans or something like that, then do you see what the whole point of that is? The whole point is, again, do not swerve to the right or to the left. We talked about this in the Dark to Light episode. The devil uses duality to fool you and to deceive you. In terms of eschatology, he's either going to push you this way and say, oh, it's in the future, you don't have to deal with it, don't worry about it. Don't think. Or, oh, it's in the past, you know, the Jews with the Romans, that's what happened. You know, we don't have to worry about the Antichrist. Do you see what's happening? If you were the Antichrist, (laughs) that would be your goal, is to either push people this way or that way. That's why the historical understanding is the most important. So if we look at the preterist view of the Antichrist, because we've looked at futurism, the, the number one contender for this is Antiochus Epiphanes. And I want to share these things with you because I want you to see that both futurism and preterism are false. And they're designed, ultimately, to deceive people from the truth. Now, we know from a couple of books in the Apocrypha, um, like Maccabees, so I'll, look, I'll read from them about Antiochus. And this is 1 Maccabees chapter 1, verse 10. And there came out of them a wicked root, Antiochus, surnamed Epiphanes, son of Antiochus the king, who had been a hostage to Rome, and he reigned in the 137th year of the kingdom of the Greeks. And there's a lot about Antiochus. This is verse 20 through 24. And after that, Antiochus had spent Egypt. He returned again he, in the 140th year and went up against Israel and Jerusalem with great multitude and entered proudly into the sanctuary and took away the golden altar and the candlestick of light and all the vessels thereof and the table of the showbread, and pouring vessels, and vials, and the censers of gold, and the veil, and the crown, and the golden ornaments. He basically pulled everything out. He took the silver and the gold, and when he had taken it away, he went into his own land, having made a great massacre, and spoke very proudly. So it seems, you know, so far like, oh my gosh, this was already fulfilled in, you know, 2,000 years ago. But let's keep reading. This is verse 38 through 39. Insomuch as the inhabitants of the Jerusalem fled because of them, whereupon the city was made an inhabitation of strangers, so made desolate, right? And became strange to those who were born in her, and her own children left her. Her sanctuary was laid waste like a wilderness, her feasts were turned into mourning, her Sabbaths into reproach, her honor into contempt. Now we know that the sanctuary was rededicated, because in John chapter 10, verse 22, 
And it was at Jerusalem, the Feast of Dedication, and it was winter. So this is a chronological stamp confirming that the uh, the sanctuary was rededicated because at some point it was pillaged by Antiochus, and he he basically defiled it. He spoke proudly, which, again, it's, it's not uncommon. Everybody who conquered the Jews or... I mean, look at Pharaoh. Look at from the very beginning, Pharaoh and Moses. He spoke very proudly against God. He blasphemed God. He denied God. And he was judged, right? So that's a pretty common theme throughout the Bible. There's a lot of people who have spoken proudly and, and basically defiled the temples and attacked Jerusalem and, you know, claimed themselves to be God. Pharaoh was God on earth, right, to the Egyptians. The emperors, Pontifex Maximus, which the Pope has today, by the way, that was about being God on earth. You were high priest and king. You were the sovereign authority. You were a God. That's what they believed. And so who was the Antichrist then? If all these people kind of fit the bill, this is the question. But here's very biblical reasons, very simple reasons, why Antiochus cannot be the Antichrist. First and foremost, Paul says it's in the future. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. I mean, as in the apostasy, as in the great falling away, the deceptions. And what's he speaking here? Is he saying, did it come already? No, he's saying it's not going to come until, until what? Until this, this other thing is fulfilled. Well, that hasn't been fulfilled, obviously, in Paul's day. And Paul lived for, or he lived, you know, over 200 years after Antiochus and Epiphanes. So when he wrote this, this was already 200 years after Antiochus. So it can't be Antiochus if what this is talking about. In Matthew 24, when Christ is talking about the abomination of desolation, in verse 15, he says, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So this is a future reality. Now, of course, Jesus was talking about two things. He was talking about the physical thing that was going to happen with the uh, second temple being destroyed, basically Jerusalem getting judged for denying the Messiah. And this is also, we talked about how this has spiritual connotations for the believers throughout history, where we see the abomination of desolation in a spiritual sense, how the church has, the Catholic church has established itself to be God, has made the sanctuary, which is representative of the plan of salvation. They've made that desolate with their false teachings. Nobody's going in the sanctuary and getting saved. They're blocking people through deception. There's a whole episode on that. Abomination of Desolation, look into that. Look into the daily. Cover that in great detail. Mystery Babylon also. All these things have been covered. But again, Matthew 24 is talking about something that's happening in the future. So the events in the Maccabees that report about Antiochus Epiphanes, again, these are not considered scriptures. So that's also important. They're not considered divinely inspired. They're historical texts, but they're not divinely inspired. And so... That should be a red flag in, in considering that as the primary resource compared to other things in the Bible, which again, contradict it. Jesus said it's in the future. The abomination of desolation for Jesus at the time and the people of his time was in the future. So it can't be Antiochus Epiphanes coming into the temple and desecrating it and doing all the things that he did because that was in the past for them. 
Luke chapter 21, verse 24, they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. This is a future reality at the time. And again, all of this happened 200 years after Antiochus. And we also know from Daniel 7 that the ten horns, uh, as for ten horns out of his kingdom, ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. This is the little horn. He shall be different from the former ones, and he shall put down three kings. This does not, this is not fulfilled by Antiochus. He didn't put down three kings or kingdoms. It doesn't match, but it does match the papacy. Daniel 12, but you, Daniel, shut up the words, this is verse four, and seal the book until the time of the end. So wait a minute, what's this whole prophecy that Daniel's been getting? It's for the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Well, right, we have the internet today. A lot of people have learned. You're learning from this series. Something that probably, if we didn't have the internet, would, would be much slower. Certainly, I can relate to that, too. I've learned quite a lot through the internet. God has shown me many things through great teachers, great resources, and I put them together for you. And so, ultimately, this is being fulfilled in this generation. All those prophecies that Daniel saw are for the end. If the little horn power that Daniel saw was for Antiochus Epiphanes, then that means, what do we make of the end? Has the end already happened? That's what some people believe. <laughs> some people believe the millennial kingdom has already happened, and we're sort of in this weird post-reality, but there's still sin and death and evil, and so that's obviously not true. But look, there's many similarities between Daniel and Revelation. Revelation was written 200 years more or more, actually, after Antiochus. So it can't be Antiochus. Another contender is Nero, which the preterists use, who was a very evil Roman emperor who persecuted the church very much. And everybody saw he was the, he was the Antichrist. But Nero didn't have a false prophet. He didn't have worldwide worship. There was no, you know, worldwide worship of Nero. He didn't have anybody who worked signs and miracles for people to believe in Nero, if that's the case, right? If we're looking at Revelation 13. And he also didn't uproot three kings before him. So again, Rome was still a power during Nero. Rome is the fourth beast in Daniel. We know that the little horn came out of Rome once Rome was done. So Nero cannot be the Antichrist. So the preterist view of the Antichrist, and of course there's plenty of people you can look in history and people say, oh, is it Stalin? Is it Mussolini? Is it, you know, Napoleon? I mean, look, stop trying to pin the tail on the Antichrist. The preterist view of the Antichrist is unfounded for many reasons. And again, it's just trying to blind you to the true Antichrist power on the earth. Antichrist is anything that is against Christ. Remember dialectics. We talked about this ad nauseum in the Dark Delight episode. Left, right, up, down, red, blue, Republican, Democrat, communism, nationalism. This is the dance. And the devil's going to try to get you in that dance. When it comes to end time stuff, the dance is, well, did it happen in the future or is it going to, or did it happen in the past? God forbid you look in history and you realize where you are in history in the present so that you know the truth. So this is the narrow road that we have to walk. But today people believe that you don't have to deal with the Antichrist because there's going to be a rapture. And we debunked that using Bible, the scripture very line by line, step by step, 
I believe, in the second episode of this series. So go check it out. If you believe in a rapture, look, there's nothing wrong with you as a person. It's normal to want to have comfort, to escape. But the Bible is not teaching you to escape. The Bible is teaching you to endure. If the first church of Revelation, which is the most persecuted, the first actually two churches were the most persecuted, if they didn't escape and they were told to endure, do you think that the final church, who is the lukewarm one in faith, is going to get whisked away to safety? When we, when Christ returns, we will meet him in the air. That's how you know it's the real deal. But he's going to return after the mark of the beast is implemented. So you have to prepare yourself mentally to endure that because it will happen. Now, most people are premillennial, so when they look at their end times views, they will, they will believe in some personal antichrist. They're trying to figure out who is the antichrist. They're looking for a personal false prophet. Postmillennialists, again, remember all the different end times views, postmillennials will, post-millennials will see that, again, history is getting better and better. And as when we have a Christian nationalist system throughout the whole world, that's when Jesus is going to arrive which again is setting you up for the false Christ more than anything else. But they believe that the whole Antichrist stuff, that's all preterist. We don't, it doesn't concern us. It's in the past with the Jews. But as you can see, these things are false teachings. They're not based soundly in Scripture. And of course, the amillennials, which are probably the most right on about the millennial kingdom, because it is now, it's a spiritual reality, Again, they've gotten away from the tradition of the reformers, which is to interpret historically and to see where you are in history. And if you do that, you see that the true Antichrist power on the earth is the papacy. It's Mystery Babylon. All millennials will just see it as this general, oh, it's an anti-Christian government or an anti-Christian religion. Well, by that definition, who is it going to be? Islam? Is it going to be communism? I mean, again, you, you know, you're very easily pulled into the dialectic if you do not have specific understanding. So everybody today, for the most part, post-millennials, amillennials, pre-millennials, they're all deceived. Do you see why this is so important? Everyone is deceived. All these end times views are not doing people justice. The most anti-Christian government and religion in history has been the papacy. Absolutely so. Again, if you study history, you know this to be the truth because it is still working today. So what was the Reformed view? What did people believe a couple hundred years ago before all this nonsense made it mainstream? What did they believe? Well, they believed that it was the papacy. Let's take a look at some quotes. This is actually from Isaac Newton, but I think it's interesting. Isaac Newton, some people say he was an occultist. I, I'm sure that he was. But I think it's interesting. The introductory chapter of Isaac Newton's treatise on the book of Revelation. What did he say? Let's see. Very important statement. If God was so angry with the Jews for not searching more diligently into the prophecies, which he had given them to know Christ by, why should we think he will excuse us for not searching into the prophecies which he has given us to know Antichrist by? Very interesting statement. For certainly it must be as dangerous and as easy an error for Christians to adhere to Antichrist as it was for the Jews to reject Christ. And therefore it is as much of our duty to endeavor to know Antichrist that we may resist him as it was theirs to know Christ that they might follow him. So look, he may be talking about a personal Antichrist and he's playing 
the papacy's, you know, narrative in this quote, but it is an important quote for a very good reason, because again, the Jews were given plenty of time. They were given 1,500 years of scripture and tradition to know who is going to be the Messiah. The Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy was more than proof. And they didn't recognize him. The people who were supposed to recognize him the most, the Pharisees, they didn't recognize him. And in fact, they killed him. <laughs> so ultimately, that was for the prophecy to be fulfilled. But nevertheless, they were ignorant. And the, the same goes for believers today. We are ignorant, largely as a body, of who the enemy really is. And we should be paying more attention to history and to prophecy so that we understand the importance of these things. So now, what did the, with that in mind, what did the reformers think who were trying to get people back to the Bible, back to proper interpretation? Let's see. This is from a historic documents, various quotes on who is the Antichrist. Okay. Who do the reformers say is the Antichrist? This is Nicholas von Armstorff. All these people are kind of in the 15th century, 16th century, 17th century, actually. He, the Antichrist, will be revealed and come to naught before the last day, so that every man shall comprehend and recognize that the Pope is the real true Antichrist and not the vicar of Christ. Therefore, those who consider the Pope and his bishops as Christian shepherds and bishops are deeply in error. But even more are those who believe the true the Turk, Islam, is the Antichrist. Because the Turk, Islam, rules outside of the church and does not sit in the holy place. There we go. Nor does he seek to bear the name of Christ, but is an open antagonist of Christ in his church. Again, dark and light, people. Catholic Church started Islam just so they can re- you know, integrate them towards the end of the age. Islam is the dark, the Catholic Church is the light. Moving on. This does not need to be revealed, but it is clear and evident because he persecutes Christians openly and not as the Pope does, secretly under the form of godliness. What an amazing quote. I mean, all these are great. Martin Luther, nothing else than the kingdom of Babylon and of very Antichrist. For who is the man of sin and the son of, perdi- and the son of perdition, that term that we looked at, but he who is teaching, but he who by his teaching and his ordinances increases the sin and perdition of souls in the church while he yet sits in the church as if he were God. All these conditions have now for many ages been fulfilled by the papal tyranny. Flacius, the sixth and last reason for our separation from the Pope and his followers be this. By many writings of our church, by the divinely inspired word, by prophecies concerning the future, and by the special characteristics of the papacy, it has been profusely and thoroughly proved that the Pope with his prelates and clergy is the real true great Antichrist, that his kingdom is the real Babylon and a never-ceasing fountain and mother of all abominable idolatry. Again, if you know your history, you know why Revelation calls the mystery Babylon the mother of abominations, because it truly is. Georg Nigrinos, the Jesuits claim to be sorely offended and have taken my declarations as an insult and blasphemy in branding the papacy as the Antichrist of which Daniel, Paul, Peter, John, and even Christ prophesied. We looked at all of these sources. We looked at Daniel, we looked at Paul, Peter, John, and the words of Christ in this episode. But this is as true as it is that Jesus is the Messiah, and I am prepared to show it even by their own definition of the word Antichrist. This Jesuit further contends that the papacy cannot be the Antichrist because the papacy has lasted for centuries. 
but that the Antichrist is supposed to reign for only three and a half years. Again, this is, this is now referring to their futurist eschatology that the Jesuits made. You see what's going on here? He's, he's calling them out on it. Moving on. But no one doubts today that Daniel spoke of year days, not literal days. The prophetic time periods of 42 months, 1260 days, one, two, and a half times are prophetic. And according to Ezekiel 4, a day must be taken for a year. We talked about the day-to-year principle. And again, that if you know that, then you see the truth. If you don't, which what which is what they want you to see, the Jesuits who created futurism, oh, no, 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 it's three and a half literal years and it's in the future. Don't, don't look at history. Look in the future. See what's going on? John Calvin. Though it may be admitted that Rome was once the mother of all churches, yet from the time when it began to be the seat of the Antichrist, it has ceased to be what it was before. Some persons think us too severe and censorious when we call the Roman pontiff Antichrist. But those who are of this opinion do not consider that they bring the same charge of presumption against Paul himself, after whom we speak and whose language we adopt. I shall briefly show that Paul's words in 2 Thessalonians 2, which we looked at, are not capable of any other interpretation than that which applies to the papacy. John Knox Yeah, to speak it in plain words, lest we submit ourselves to Satan, thinking that we submit ourselves to Jesus Christ. For as as your Roman Kirk, as it is now corrupted, the authority thereof, whereon stands the, the hope of our victory. I no more doubt but that it is the synagogue of Satan, and the head thereof, called the Pope, to be that man of sin whom the apostle speaks in Second Thessalonians, again, the man of the son of perdition, which, again, compares to Judas. Judas is the betrayer. He was a false convert who was in charge of the treasury. Thomas Kramer, whereof it followeth Rome to be the seat of the Antichrist and the Pope to be the very Antichrist himself. I could prove the same by many other scriptures, old writers, and strong reasons. All these are cited, by the way. They're all cited, and you can look them up. Roger Williams Pastor Williams spoke of the Pope as the pretend vicar of Christ on earth, who sits as God over the temple of God, exalting himself not only above all that is called God, but over the souls and consciences of his vassals, yea, over the Spirit of Christ, over the Holy Spirit, yea, and God himself, speaking against the God of heaven, thinking to change times and laws, but he, has, but he is the son of perdition. Now look, did the, did the Pope fulfill this times and laws? We looked at this. The, the papacy changed the Gregorian calendar that was by Pope Gregory and the uh, Sabbath. We looked at that, times and laws. What laws is it talking about? It's not talking about regular laws because everybody changes times and laws. You know, when you are a king, you change the law. So it's not talking about that. It's not saying the obvious. It's saying God's law. Well, what law did the papacy change? It actually changed a couple. It changed the, the commandment, the fourth commandment, the Sabbath, but also it split, it got rid of the second commandment on images. If you look at the Catholic version of the Ten Commandments, you know, the, the second commandment that says don't have any graven images, i.e. statues venerating saints, Mary, icons. Don't do that. That's going to lead you to idolatry and putting your faith in objects. You cannot stop that. That's human nature. Don't do that. They got rid of that. And they split the 10th commandment, don't covet, into don't cover your neighbor's wife, don't cover your neighbor's goods. So they changed the law and the time. Moving on. The Baptist Confession of Faith. The Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church in whom by the appointment of the Father all power for the calling institution order of government of the church 
is invested in a supreme and sovereign manner. Neither can the Pope of Rome in any sense be head thereof, but is that Antichrist, that man of sin, the son of perdition, that exalts himself in the church against Christ. The Westminster Confession of Faith. There is no other head of the church but the Lord Jesus Christ. Nor can the Pope of Rome in any sense be the head thereof, but is that Antichrist, the man of sin, the son of perdition, that exalts himself in the church against Christ and all that is called God. John Wesley. In many respects, the Pope has an indisputable claim to those titles. He is, in an emphatical sense, the man of sin, as he increases all manner of sin above measure. And he is, too, properly styled the son of perdition, as he has caused the death of numberless multitudes, both of his opposers and followers, destroyed innumerable souls, and will himself perish everlastingly. He is it that opposes himself to the emperor, once his rightful sovereign, and that exalted himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, commanding angels and putting kings under his feet, both of whom are called gods in scripture, claiming the highest power, the highest honor, suffering himself not once, only to be styled God or vice-God. Indeed, no less implied in his ordinary title, Most Holy Lord. Again, we looked at, you know, we even looked in history where they um, called him our Lord God the Pope. There's evidence for this, people. Our Lord God the Pope was a title that was given to the Pope. I don't remember the 15th century. It was around this time. That's why people are, that's why John Wesley's talking about it. So that he sitteth enthroned in the temple of God mentioned in Revelation 11 verse 1, declaring himself that he is God, claiming the prerogatives which belong to God alone. Again, these people are attributing consistently to who? The papacy. Charles Spurgeon, a 19th century great preacher, not technically a reformer, but one of the best preachers that's ever lived, probably, at least in the last 200 years. It is, the, it is the bounden duty of every Christian to pray against Antichrist, and as to what Antichrist is, no sane man ought to raise a question. If it be not the popery of the Church of Rome, then there is nothing in the world that can be called by that name. <laughs> Pretty strong statement. If there were to be issued a hue and cry for Antichrist, we would certainly take up this church on suspicion, and it would certainly not be let loose again, for it is so exactly answers the description. Popery is contrary to Christ's gospel and is the Antichrist, and we ought to pray against it. It should be the daily prayer of every believer that Antichrist might be hurled like a millstone into the flood, and for Christ, because it wounds Christ, because it robs Christ of his glory. Yes, it does. Because it puts sacramental efficacy in the place of his atonement. Yes, it does. We talked about that. And it lifts a piece of bread into the place of the Savior, <laughs> the transubstantiation, and a few drops of water into the place of the Holy Ghost, which is, again, baptism as a supernatural work of God versus getting some water sprinkled on you and now you're saved as an infant when you can't even make a conscious choice. And puts a mere fallible man like ourselves up as the vicar of Christ on earth. If we pray against it because it is, it is against him, we shall love the persons, though we hate their errors. We shall love their souls, though we loathe and detest their dogmas. And so the breath of our prayers will be sweetened, because we turn our faces towards Christ when we pray. Very beautiful quote. Again, it's realizing these people are largely deceived. Of course, I believe that you know the Pope knows exactly what he's doing and very committed to being antichrist but you know most people like in the catholic system it's not about catholics being bad most people going to catholic church are just deceived they don't realize these things they need to be woken up of course last quote here reverend uh j a willie 
in the 19th century, also another pastor. The same line of proof which establishes that Christ is the promised Messiah, conversely applied, establishes that the Roman system is the predicted apostasy. (laughs) Beautiful statement. In the life of Christ, we behold the converse of what the Antichrist must be. And in the prophecy of the Antichrist, we are shown the converse of what Christ must be and was. Such an amazing statement. And when we place the papacy between the two and compare it with each, we find, on the one hand, that it is the perfect converse of Christ as seen in his life, and on the other, that is the perfect image of the Antichrist as shown in the prophecy of him. We conclude, therefore, that if Jesus of Nazareth be the Christ, the Roman papacy is the Antichrist. So, pretty definitive words. I mean, look, people believed these things long before the internet, long before any of this stuff. But what happened? They believed these things, and that was a serious problem because people were waking up. They were waking up to going back to the Bible, waking up to grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. That's a big problem if you're an institutionalized religion that is trying to get people to worship you and your false God. So they had to create a false eschatology. Today, most evangelicals are looking for a one-world government, like the big bad deep state. A lot of the evangelicals believe that. The communist world order, the WEF, they're watching Israel because they've been fooled by dispensationalism. Israel's time, God's prophetic timepiece. No, it's not. No, it's not. It ceased to be that way 2,000 years ago. It was, for sure, for the Old Testament, but not anymore. And we talked about that ad nauseum for the first 10 episodes at least. But they believe that the future is going to be a one world government. And the reality, the reality, get this, this is very important. The reality is going to be one world religion. It's going to be a spiritual reality, we talked about in the King of the North, that unifies religion and politics and culture into one idea. Now that idea will manifest as a nationalist system, but it's going to be a unified system. It's going to be a one world religion. And if you're looking for evil governments or evil people, you're going to miss it. You're going to think that when that system comes, because it's defeated the deep state, the light has won. You're going to fall for the biggest deception of all time. People are seeing the communist order, but they're not seeing the light world order that's forming, the Christian nationalist system that is being formed and being driven by the papacy to ultimately what? To pay homage to the first beast, which is what the Bible says. The woman riding the beast is Mystery Babylon. It's the Vatican. They will assume power at the end because they will, the kings of the earth will give their power to this system. That's what the Bible says. We looked at that. One is obvious. Again, the devil's always trying to get you to look, 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 look what's obvious. You know, physical temple. Don't look at spiritual temple, the church, and who's in there proclaiming himself to be God. Don't look at that. Look at the physical temple the Jews are building. Oh, look, here's another carrot. There's another thing happening. You see what's going on? One is obvious, one is not obvious. You have to learn to see what is not obvious when you read scripture, especially like end time stuff. You have to have discernment and see spiritual things. Again, we looked at all the beasts of Daniel, the statue, Revelation. All these things are related. It's, there's no other power in history. If, if this is all news to you and the first time you're seeing any of this, go back to the previous episodes and check them out. There's no other power in history. The the episodes I created for you on this topic specifically 
are so well documented that there's no way you can tell me that there's another power that fulfills the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation. And look, I'm not alone. These are not my ideas. First and foremost is what Scripture testifies. But if we look at history, what did other people think? All the reformers, all the people who got back to reading the Bible and wanted to prioritize Christ as the center of faith, what did they see? What did the Holy Spirit open their eyes to? The Holy Spirit opened their eyes to something that people did not see for 1,200 plus years, which is that the system was the papacy. The Antichrist system was the papacy. In the beginning, when Paul and Peter and John and Christ all talked about the mystery of lawlessness at the beginning, they didn't know exactly how it was going to play out. I mean, how could you? They were still in Rome, but they knew that that system was already forming. It was forming with pagan Rome. It was forming with false converts. They didn't know how it was going to happen exactly. Of course, Christ did, but you know the apostles didn't really know. But they, they had an, an idea because it was already working. The spirit of Antichrist was already there. Then the reformers realized, oh my gosh, this has been going on now for over a millennium. This is the power that the Bible was talking about. Then the counter-reformation happened. Let's suppress that. Let's get people to think differently about the end times. And now you have people getting their theology off TikTok. This is what the world we live in today. So, the Antichrist is not in the past because it doesn't fulfill any of those prophecies and most of the prophecies are talking about the future. It's not talking about the past. Jesus spoke about it in the future. Now the Antichrist is also not in the far future because this is, again, a, a lie designed to redirect you off of looking at the present moment in history, in context of history. John spoke about it as a spiritual force, when he said Antichrist, it's the spirit of Antichrist. It's an attitude. Anybody can be Antichrist. If, if you do something that is fighting against Christ or fighting against the gospel, that's Antichrist. A movie can be Antichrist. Antichrist is anything that is in place of or against Christ. That's, that's what this is really the big takeaway today. But the apostles all believed that it already started. Again, they all believe it already started. Daniel and John spoke about it. They spoke about Antichrist systems and powers and kingdoms. Daniel gave the political aspect. The big picture, John kind of started with the little horn and moved his way towards the very end. It's a very, very interesting way that these two books relate to each other. But the type for the personal aspect of the Antichrist, if there is one, if there is a, if there's a single typology or type or foreshadowing of the Antichrist, who is it? It's Judas. Only Judas is the son of perdition, which is used only one other time to talk about the personal nature of the Antichrist. And again, all the reformers agreed. We saw that abundantly. Who was Judas? He was a false convert in charge of the treasury. Rome and the papacy as a system fulfills all of the prophets and warnings regarding the systems and powers. The Pope, who is ahead of that system, fulfills the type for Judas. It's very clear. Again, if you have eyes to see, it's very clear. And the question is, what about the false prophet? Well, we talked about that in the false prophet episode. It's called the second beast episode. Please go check it out. It's a lot of confusion because, again, people think the false prophet is an individual. 
No, the beast, which is a system, acts like a false prophet. Remember that this system that John sees in Revelation 13 looks like a lamb, Christianity, but speaks and acts like a dragon, meaning it's Luciferian. We looked at how this system makes people worship the first beast, pays homage to it. What does that mean through all these false signs and wonders? Well, you have in the U.S., what do you have? Televangelism, the charismatic movement, the prosperity gospel. You know, the Protestants are reuniting with the papacy, saying, oh, it's good. They're reuniting with Islam, the passion of the Christ, which is all just Catholic programming and occult programming, the chosen. All these things are just false signs and wonders moving people into a Christian nationalist system. Just like it was for over 1,200 years, from thirteen from 321 A.D., to 1798 when the papacy was arrested or the pope was arrested that's almost 14 over 1400 years of a christian nationalist system that's what it's coming back to you think it's going away no way no way jose remember again that the church in revelation the the mystery babylon sits on seven hills there's no that alone should be the the giveaway anybody who's honest just look at that. The, the woman is a church. Woman has consistently been used to denote the body of believers. In the Old Testament, it was Israel. In the New Testament, it's the church. Which again, another example is Revelation 12. The woman that's fleeing the dragon. Initially, the woman that's clothed in the sun with the stars. That's not Mary. That's Israel. That's giving birth to the Messiah. The body of believers. But then the Messiah is born. Then the dragon chases the woman. So what happens? The woman becomes the church. There's one woman. It's always the group of believers. Christ does not have two brides. According to dispensationalism, which is a totally heretical false theology because of so many reasons we talked about. Look, if you are a dispensationalist, if people are teaching you dispensationalist ideas, flee, flee and abandon it because it's going to lead you astray. Dispensationalism thinks Israel is still the chosen people. It's not. They're not. Christ does not have two brides. Israel is a bride and then the church is a bride. How does that work? He has one bride. Revelation 12 is proof of that. The woman who represents the body of believers, who was the virgin in the Old Testament, and of course, she's the bride in the New Testament. She, it's, it's showing you Old and New Testament combining in, in Revelation 12. And the woman is continuous through both. That means the woman represents what? The body of true believers. Now, if that's the case, the harlot represents an apostate church. What apostate church sits on seven hills? It's the Vatican. And if she's riding a beast, that means she's controlling a political system because the kings of the earth, just like Revelation 17 says, give their power to this system. So look, I hope today has been informative. Don't be fooled by physical things. Satan is always trying to bring your attention to the physical world, to what's obvious. There may be an individual like the Pope that heads the final system. Certainly if the papacy comes back to power, which it will, it will have a Pope, possibly even a false Christ. Maybe that's on the horizon. Either way, don't worry so much about individuals and chips in your arm and... You know, physical things. Look, all these things we'll talk about. I believe the next episode we'll talk about the mark of the beast. The mark of the beast is not a physical thing. It's what's on your heart. 
It's about obedience and worship. It's a spiritual reality. But if you're looking after physical things, you're going to be distracted. The word antichrist is anything or anyone opposing the gospel and opposing Christ, denying Christ as the Messiah, denying that Christ came in the flesh, denying the Godhood of Jesus, working against the gospel. Anything like that is antichrist. A sign could be antichrist. If you see a giant sign that says, oh, you know, Jesus never came or Jesus is... Uh, you know, doesn't exist. Jesus is fake, fake news. That's antichrist. So you have to expand your vision, expand your understanding. One more time, the Bible talks about beasts as kingdoms, politicals, uh, political powers, systems, religious powers. It's not talking about beasts being individuals. We looked in detail in all these things. If Satan does make a personal appearance, I'll leave you with this. He will possess somebody, but it's not going to be an incarnation. Don't give Satan credit. He will possess somebody, possibly even manifest as a, as a false Jesus, which many people will be deceived if they are expecting a millennial kingdom in the future that's going to be a golden age, and then, you know, Jesus is here now. They don't read scripture, and they realize that actually that's going to be the mark of the beast. This false one-world system of light and prosperity, when they say peace and safety, what happens? Sudden destruction will come upon them. So, look, we've talked about a lot of these things. If If this is all news to you, then I highly encourage you to go back to previous episodes. But remember that Antichrist can be many things. So don't get fooled into this pin the tail on the Antichrist or pin the tail on the false prophet. Learn to see the truth. So I hope this episode has helped you. Next week, we'll probably talk about the mark of the beast and give you some great insight on that as well. Again, keep your eyes open. Do not be deceived because most people are not seeing rightly, and that's for good reason. We're living in those final days of deception. So I hope that this has helped you open your eyes a little more, woken up. Hope it's a resource. And I hope that you share it with your friends too so they can learn because this is a very hot topic. But until next time, God bless you. Take it easy. And we'll see you then.